Hello and welcome to another coronavirus special episode of Freelance Party Broadcast. I'm Faye and this is Jess. Hiya. And you're listening to the podcast of Freelance Corner, the online platform for the UK's freelancers. This is our first time recording podcast since the official launch of Freelance Corner and we're excited to be joined by Kuli Samra, Client Relationship Director at Nutmeg. Great to see you guys or speak to you guys anyway. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited to be speaking to your freelancers and self-employed today. Thank you so much for joining us. For those who don't know what Nutmeg is, Kali, can you explain what you do? Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, I think we share a core affinity with your listeners. And I'll come on to that in a second. And, you know, what I should point out is that many of our customers today are self-employed. They include freelancers, entrepreneurs, successful sports people as well. And they've used Nutmeg for, for about eight years now. And the key reason I think we share an affinity with your listeners, Jess and Faye, is because eight years ago, we were set up by somebody who was a self-employed individual. This was a startup. Uh, Nick Hungerford was his name. And he'd worked in brokerage, stock brokerage for a while and had become disillusioned with the way that the industry was treating individual investors. Before we came on, I looked at some of the surveys about trust sort of barometers. And you always find that financial professionals only come just above, I think it was journalists and politicians. Uh, So, you know, that's how little the industry is trusted. And at the top are normally nurses and doctors. So what Nick wanted to do was really set something up that you could build people's trust. And I think part of that comes from transparency, comes from not using technical jargon, most importantly, not charging our customers really high fees. So I know that's a bit of a waffle answer. But I think it's important to point that out. And I know this firsthand. I've been with Nutmeg now for about five months. And I came, so to speak, from the dark side. I I worked for sort of uh, big brokerage firms that did things very differently. But I think, you know, if you look at the amount of media attention that Nutmeg attracts, I think it's really a shining example of how firms should be run for individual consumers. The short answer for what we do and the technical answer is that Nutmeg is a discretionary wealth manager. And what that means is that if you're hardworking members decide that they want to invest, but they don't want the complexity and the anguish of choosing stocks and what to put their money into, then they should come to us. We take the complexity out and take away the anguish aspect as well. We really try and make that process as easy as possible. So both those answers are fantastic. And I think it's great to kind of talk about how you started with this self-employed person and it's grown so much. Most of our listeners are freelancers. So before we start, it'd be fantastic if you could explain what freelancers can get from Nutmeg as part of buying a freelance corner pack. Yeah, of course, Jess. We represent great value to our customers. You know, the way that we charge, I think, is really disruptive. If you look at discretionary wealth management, it can be three, four times the general cost of what what we offer to all of our customers. But as a special uh, offer, I guess you could say, I don't know what the right term to use, is that, that anybody that purchases a freelance corner pack actually gets six months free of our management fees, which is pretty rare. We don't extend that offer too often. So I think it's a great way for us and yourselves to partner together to help freelancers and the self-employed. So when you say those fees, what does that give you in a kind of really basic sense? What does that actually mean for people who buy freelance corner packs? So what that means is that our fees vary between 0.45 and 0.75% of the amount that's actually being invested. It varies based on what you actually invest, the underlying investment that you make. So, you know, half of that, your members are not going to pay. And that can really add up over a period of time. Uh, I have to say, I have a strong suit in maths, but I can't <laughs> think about it on the fly. But, you know, on £10,000, it's a pretty decent saving. Yeah. So today we're talking all about investments. Now, many freelancers listening might 
feel like now is not really the time to be investing money at all. But would you say differently or what would you say about freelancers and investing at the moment? So Faye, I mean, that's a really good question. And we get that a lot from everybody. New customers ask us, look, is this a really good time to invest? And our existing customers are saying, should I get out of the market? And what I should point out is that well over 90% of our client base have not done anything in this crisis, which I think is very, very important because time in the market is more important than timing the market. And what I mean by that, it's, it's a really old saying in our industry. And what I mean by that is that if you try and time the market, you have to get it right twice. You have to get it right that you're buying shares on the downturn. So you have to get them at discounted value. Then you have to get it right about selling them at the top. It's better to stay invested. And for anybody, whether they're freelancers or anybody else, we suggest don't throw all of your money into the market in one go. Because again, that means that you're at risk of timing it in the wrong way. What we suggest is to do something called pound cost averaging, which for your, your listeners is great because I know that the way that they earn can be pretty lumpy over a period of time. Yeah. So what they want to think about is, well, how do I spread that out over a period of time? So rather than investing £20,000 tomorrow, you should split that £20,000 over a period of time. Because what that means, if, we, if I could draw a chart, you know, imagine a chart, what it'll do, it should go on an upward trajectory, but that trajectory will be bumpy. It'll go up and down. Overall, when you smooth it out, it should be an upward trajectory. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, th- I think when we talk about investments, I, I kind of want to get a better idea of what kind of investments we're talking about and where that money goes. Because I understand there are different types of risk involved, but I definitely don't understand it as much as I'd like to. Yeah, that's a really fair comment. And it's the same for our customers as well, Jess. And you know, if we talk about what types of investments are out there, you know, broadly speaking, let's say we split them into cash investments and stocks and shares investments. Now, it's a lot more complex than that. And I will guess, you know, like a lot of people out there, they look at cash investments as something that is intuitively easy to understand because you all know what cash is, right? So I think the vast majority of people open what we know as cash ISAs. ISAs are individual savings accounts. And I'll come on to what they are in a second, but they're tax wrappers essentially, which anybody can open. And they're incredible vehicles to really leverage. But um, if we talk about a, a cash saving, let's just say a bank account, a normal bank account. Now, I looked before we came online today and looked to see what the returns on cash are at the moment. And they vary between 17 to 1.3%. And that varies based on the penalties of taking that money out early. Now, what you've got to think about is what happens to the real value of your cash. And that is what inflation can do. Inflation erodes the value of your cash. Now, at the moment, we're in a very unusual position that inflation is next to zero because of coronavirus. People aren't, we know this, right? People aren't spending. The prices of most goods is not being pushed up. But normally, the target for inflation is around 2%. So simple maths tells you that a 1.7% return on your cash with a 2% inflation rate means that your real return is going to be minus 0.3 annualized. So we're not saying that cash is a bad investment. We're just saying think about what you do as to how much money you have in cash. Because you do need to have some to cover for rainy days, but think about how much you have. And I think the other thing to think about is compound interest. Now, Einstein says that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. (laughs) And he goes on to say, he who understands it earns it, and he who doesn't pays it. So to give you an idea of how important compound interest is, so if you put £1,000 a month under your mattress, figuratively, for 30 years, you'll finish up with £360,000 at the end of that 30 years. Imagine if you earn zero interest rate. 
So, you know, whatever you earn from your bank account, it gets cancelled out by inflation. Now, if you do the same within stocks and shares, assuming a 6.5% annual gain and compound interest, you'll finish up with 1 million over that 30 years. Now, to be clear, I'm not guaranteeing any returns. We always like to say in my industry, your capital is always at risk. But nonetheless, I think this paints, you know, an interesting picture around compound interest and around annual gains as well. So I think what one of the things we need to fundamentally do in this country, which is really prevalent in the US, I've worked for American companies for most of my career, is we need to look at investing tantamount to saving. And often in this country, we look at investing as more tantamount to gambling more than anything yeah. else. And I guess it takes a cultural shift and change uh, on that front, really. So investing equals saving is, I think, the key mantra here. I guess because we talk about the different levels of risk involved and that makes you think more of gambling than saving. It feels more like, oh, you know, do you want to put your money at risk? Probably not. I think that's a very important point. And, you know, when you say we don't have that with savings, to be clear, we're talking about cash savings, right? We, we have this sense that cash savings are secure, and guaranteed and, and everything else. And yes, there is a certain degree of guarantee there, but you also have to look at your gains as well. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that your members should take more risk than they should, but we help with all of our customers to help them understand what level of risk is right for them. And then we help for them to be invested in that right level of risk. And if you want me to, I can go into more detail around that. But you know, understanding your appetite for risk is extremely important. And then clearly risk and return are, are sort of tied together. I think it'd be really good to understand those different levels of risk then and how you work out what type is best for you. Yeah, of course, Jess. So the way that we help our clients understand their appetite for risk is that we have a suitability exercise that our clients go through. We ask them things like, you know, how long do you want to tie this money up for? What happens if you lose X amount? And then what happens is depending upon what kind of investment they decide upon, we will assign them an investment wrapper number between one and 10. Number one being the lowest risk possible, number 10 being one of the higher risk options. And then the way that we manage those different options is by having different kinds of instruments in there, a combination of cash, bonds, and stocks. The higher risk, the more stocks that will be held in that wrap. So that's the way we help our customers sort of understand what their appetite for risk is and where they should sit across that risk spectrum when they come to us. Wow. Yeah, I never knew that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. this is really interesting because... I know nothing about stocks and shares. I hear about it all the time and my mum works in a bank, but I know nothing about it. So, I mean, what is an easy way to get into investing if you've never even considered it before? Yeah, Faye, that's a really good question. And you're not alone in understanding how stocks and shares work. And, and candidly, that's the fault of my industry to some degree, because I think it's within people's interests within my industry to put up that smokescreen of sort of obfuscation and confusion and complexity and all of those things, I think what Nutmeg does very, very well is remove that smokescreen, is introduce transparency. You know, to make something simple is actually a very complex process, I think, especially in our industry. And I think Nutmeg has really done that very, very well. So the biased person in me is going to say, come to Nutmeg, because it is easy. It takes you 10 minutes to set up and you sort of set it and forget it if you want to. Now, one of the other options of getting into investing is to what people call self-directed investing. And what that means, Faye, is that you decide what stocks and shares to buy. You decide what funds to buy because you get sort of collective investment called funds. And that's great. 
We have clients that do that and have their accounts with Nutmeg. But the way that I would describe that is if you're resetting your bathroom, you would not try and do it yourself unless you are a plumber. You would call in a professional plumber. If you have a toothache, you're not going to tie your tooth to the door and slam the door and make it pull out. You'll call in a professional dentist, right? Um, Which I hope so. <laughs> we hope so, yeah. But, you know, continuing that analogy, mechanic, right? Some people enjoy tinkering under the hood with their collector's car. But if their car breaks down, they're going to go to an expert. They're going to go to a garage. The easy way to get investing into investing, people think, is to do it themselves. But is that really the smart way to do it? Do you have the time? I mean, I know your listeners and readership are so focused on trying to be successful. They are wearing so many hats as accountant, as salesperson, as HR person. You know, obviously, the bigger the firm gets, they can farm all those out. But why do they want the headache of having to manage their own money as well? We are the figurative plumber, the electrician, the mechanic for money. And, you know, we have full-time individuals that are dedicated to make sure your money is monitored and actively managed the right way. So really the direct answer phase, give it to us. We'll set your account up in 10 minutes or so, and then you can either set it and forget it, or you can interact with us in different ways. We actually have, I think the number is as high as 60%. 60% of our client base say they're expert investors. So, you know, 40% say that they're not experts. So, you know, which is kind of counterintuitive because you would come to us if you don't know what you're doing. Well, I would say that you'd come to us if you want someone to look look after it very securely and safely, as safe as it can get, and actively as well. And that's what we find. That's really interesting. I just wondered, like, when we talk about investment, obviously, so many freelancers will be thinking, well, this is a time when we don't have much disposable income, if any, and probably eating into our savings more than ever. Is there a rule around how much you should invest? Because I know with saving, my nan always says to me, save 10%, whatever you get, whatever money you get, you save 10%. And I stuck with that from when I was earning £10 for a a shift at a cafe to now. Is there a similar rule to investing? Is there a proportion of your disposable income that you should be maybe looking at investing? I don't know what to say. Your nan's answered the question. So should we move on to the next question? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> nan's are always smart. And she, she's pretty much there, Jess. And you know, there's no one size fits all, to be clear. But you, you asked, is there a rule? And I hate to call this a rule, but it's sort of a, a good saving habit, I guess you could say. And it's, it's generally called the 50-20-30 rule. What that generally says is that when you're planning for the use of your income, your post-tax income, think about it this way you want to set aside 50% for all necessities in life. So that's rent, mortgage repayments, utilities, bills, food, all that stuff that you can't avoid. And then 30% is your lifestyle choices, you know, gym, holidays, restaurants, all the things we can't do at the moment. Um, But that, you know, that generally is sort of how it sort of shakes out. And then that 20% is for getting ahead. And the reason I said your nan's right, because that 20%, is a combination of things like pensions, debt payments, saving for your rainy day, and saving or investing as well. So, you know, if you shake it out, it probably is 10%. And the other 10% of that, you know, other half of that 20% might be for debt payments or whatever else it might be. And what's very interesting is that people that we speak to are obviously reallocating that 30% from their lifestyle choices to that savings bucket a little bit at the moment. But I also understand, you know, for freelancers and self-employed, income can be very, very lumpy. It's uh, feast and famine is often what can be seen sometimes. 
And so it's hard to stick to a rule, but this is just a guidance. I think what's most important, rather than sticking to this kind of 50, 20, 30 rule, is really understanding what is happening to your money, really having visibility on where your money is going. I'm sure you've heard that stat that people spend more time shopping for holidays than they do looking after their own money <laughs> and understanding where their money goes. <laughs> and, uh, and it's easy to understand why, because shopping for a holiday feels like a nice thing to do. But you've got to save for that holiday. You've got to understand where your income goes. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the, the freelancers and the self-employed probably spend more time doing that because they have to be their own accountants to some extent. But, you know, I would hazard that they're looking at, as an accountant to what's happening with the business and maybe not looking at it enough in terms of outflows, inflows, savings, and, you know, those buckets we talked about. Another thing to touch on, obviously, with the coronavirus and everything going around at the moment, have you noticed a drop in numbers of people investing since the onset of this or any effect of the virus in terms of any of the investments? Just because I know now more than ever, people are being so cautious of their money and where it is going. Yeah, that's a really good question, Faye, because I guess right now, you know, we have a higher level of uncertainty and a a higher awareness of uncertainty. I forget what the numbers are about the number of people that are furloughed, but it's incredibly high. In terms of what we've seen, so we have targets to reach, as all financial services firms do. And I've really been heartened by the fact that we are pretty much on target and we've pretty much had you know, a lot of interest in what we do. Now, whether that's because people are now looking at their investments, they have a little bit more time and trying to decide what to do with their investments. What I will say, it's taking longer for people from making the decision to actually making that investment. You know, making the decision to maybe open an account and then decide to proceed to actually then funding the account. And that would suggest to me, and this is anecdotal, by the way, I haven't seen any information from my firm, but just from my experience and clients that I speak to and my team speak to, that decision process is taking much longer. But overall, there's still a lot of interest in what we do. You know, we, in the space that we're in, Faye, we have about £2 billion under management and over 80,000 customers. And that has continued to grow even uh, during this difficult period as well. But it has been difficult. You know, stock markets have sold off and, you know, it's really made the headlines on the front page as well. But it's about patience. It's about remaining invested. As I shared with you earlier, over 90% of our existing client base haven't done anything, which is a smart thing to do. It's funny about, God, maybe six, eight months ago, Faye and I had a guest on, Iona Bain, who runs the Young Money blog, and she's very big on kind of encouraging young people to save. And she yeah. was uh, Ipsy's freelancer of the year as well. So she's like very clued up cool. on this stuff. And we were discussing Plum, which is like an app that you use yeah. to save money and invest it. And I use it for like casual little savings and then face that using it as well. And our listeners were, um, in fact, I had someone tweet me to say that they had started using Plum and they tweeted me maybe last month or two months ago to be like, I suddenly have 500 quid. And it's those kind of things that I think those tiny pots of money that can be great to think, well, I didn't even know I had this money. Like loads of banks do that thing where you pay for a carrot and it kind yeah. of, it takes the additional 10 pence and puts it up to 50p or whatever and it saves that for you. Those little chunks of money that I know loads of freelancers have these kinds of accounts, those little chunks of money for me seem like a really good, almost risk-free way to invest because you didn't even know you had that money. It's like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So maybe that's where we'll start, say, with our pots of savings <laughs> that we started 
back then. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason I'm asking all these questions. It's not really for the listeners, it's for me. It's for yourself. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, I'm expecting to open an account at the end of this phase. So. <laughs> and I hope you bought your freelance pack as well, so you can get six months free. <laughs> yeah. We'll be going back to our Fingers manager crossed. after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, can I mean, we I, get that deal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, acorns to oak trees and, uh, and all of that. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, if you do this little and often, you can really be pleasantly surprised how much you can build up. And, you know, we talked about compound interest and that example of putting it under your mattress and you know, investing in markets and how important that can be. So we now have some questions from freelancers. And firstly, Maria asks, as a freelancer, I don't get a pension from my employer because I don't have one. And therefore, my pension is very small. Would I be better off investing the small amount I put into my pension every month? I'm really glad you asked me that question, Jess, because I promise you, I, I, this isn't a plan. We've done some work around pensions and freelancers. And you know, some of your listeners can go online and look at the Nutmeg site. What's really great about Nutmeg and the research that we put out is it's not behind a figurative paywall. You don't have to be a customer to see that information. You can actually go onto our site. There's blogs and various other things. And before we came on today, I, I did some work around previous work we've done for freelancers specifically and some blogs that we put out. And pensions was exactly one topic I had sort of at the top of the list to talk about. Maria, it's a really good question. And according to our research, the average self-employed person invests around about £77 or so a month into a pension scheme. And that's half the average your employed person would actually go about saving. And we also found that half of all self-employed do not have a pension, exactly what Maria said there. And we get it. You know, you're, you're putting all your time and your effort into developing the business, finding clients, and as we talked before about wearing multiple hats, and setting up a pension doesn't seem like a priority at all. But think of it this way, why should the person that is employed by a big firm have double what you have in terms of your pension savings? You know, pensions are incredibly important, and they're a really efficient way to save as well. As a self-employed person, you can benefit from tax relief in exactly the same way that an employed person would. And so for every £100 you contribute to a pension, the government provides a top of about £25. Now, I hope some of your members are high-rate taxpayers because they would still benefit at a much higher level as well. And the way that we can help your listeners is that uh, personal pensions actually add that top up automatically. It's called relief at source. And also we have that flexibility as well. You don't have to contribute the same amount. I know that the earnings, as we've said a number of times, is very lumpy for your group. So you don't have to contribute the same amount. You can invest a lump sum if you prefer or change the amount that you invest on an ongoing basis. Also, I'd imagine some of your self-employed and freelancers probably worked at different places previously. Maybe they haven't been self-employed the whole time. So what we do is we can go out there and consolidate all of your pensions into one pot. And we take care of the headache of doing that. You know, talk to us. We can help you navigate this minefield around pensions. But what I would say is pensions are incredibly important. They are a really efficient way to save for your futures, irrespective if you're self-employed or working as well. And you know, if I can just add one other thing, you know, mortgages can be tough as well around pensions because I know that uh, self-employed have to work harder to prove that they're a trustworthy borrower. But we have a company we work with called Habito, and they can potentially help. So, you know, we can work with you to, uh, or you can come directly to us and we can refer you towards Habito. But that's definitely something that's come up when we've spoken to self-employed people. That's great. <laughs> great. And one from a freelancer called Charles. How safe is my money if I invest it? I'm uncomfortable investing any money at the moment because I'm worried it could be lost. Charles, it's a really good question. Uh, you've worked really hard to earn your money and you want to make sure that it's in a safe place. 
there's a bunch of different answers to the question. You know, firstly, if we look at it from where I think it's coming from is the safety of investing in the stock market. My compliance team will kill me if I don't say this, but your capital is always at risk. And what that means that when you invest in the stock market, you are risking your money. And as we talked about earlier, you know, the risk profile that we sort of spectrum that we have is one to 10. We don't have a risk zero because there's no such thing. Your cash is always at risk, even with a bank as well. But we can manage that risk. And there's lots of different ways we do that. One of them is diversification. One of them is, you know, making sure the safety and security of where your assets are held is very, very important because you have something called counterparty risk. So we've got market risk, which we try and manage through diversification and lots of other different ways. Then you've got counterparty risk. And what that means is where you place your money, that might not be a safe entity. So, you know, Nutmeg is very large now, 2 billion in assets. We're regulated by the FCA, but the money's held at very safe counterparties. But an additional layer that is provided is something called FSCS. If you Google FSCS, you'll see what that is. And what that means, it's an entity that, let's call it insures in sort of speech marks, insures your account for £85,000. And that means that if, if, God forbid, anything should happen to the entity, then you are cut for £85,000. To be clear, that doesn't insure you against market risk, because that market risk is something completely different. This is about that counterparty risk that I talked about. So Charles, I understand that you're looking for something very, very safe and secure. And we do try and help our clients understand what their risk appetite looks like and sort of help them with that, but then also what that counterparty risk might look like as well and how we mitigate that. That's really interesting. I think that's definitely answered Maria and Charles's questions. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this episode. You'll be able to find a lot of information in the show notes below and on Freelance Corner. Thanks for listening to Freelance Vital Broadcast. Join Freelance Corner, the online platform for UK freelancers at freelancecorner.co.uk. Subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify or any other podcast platform. And for the first time, we can tell you about our support packages on Freelance Corner. We have three packs with prices ranging from £8.49 a month to £29.49 a month. With our ultimate pack, you can claim up to £10,000 if a client goes into administration, subject to terms and conditions, so perfect for at the moment. You can find more about our packs and the perks of membership on our website. Please like, share and leave us a review and let us know what we should quiz an expert on next time. Thank you so much for joining us, Gully. It was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking to you guys. Faye, we need to open you an account. (laughs) 